Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Golfing Grandkeeper podcast. On today's episode of the podcast, we are going to start off with walking the fairways as always, looking at the weather itself, particularly on the eastern side of Australia. Um, bit of changes there that's happening. Great stuff for the courses that don't have a good water supply. We'll be talking a little bit about that. Um, looking at a development that has fallen over, which was looking pretty promising, uh, but sadly is not going to be happening, which involved Greg Norman. Going to touch on some work happening in WA under one of the design companies that uh, have been doing a little bit of work over there. A few golf courses down in Melbourne that have been busy during lockdown and also a golf course in Sydney that looks to be cut in half. And then we're going to move on to a bit of golf chat with friend of the podcast and friend of mine in Melbourne, Ross Flanagan, who is a podcast legend across the world. No doubt you've heard him from the My Love of Golf podcast. Now, I've been interested in catching up with Ross, and uh, we recorded this little conversation just the other day. So I uh, was really excited to catch up with Roscoe and chat all sorts of different things about golf. I hope you enjoy the chat with him uh, a little bit later on. And uh, looking at the Greenkeeper Shed, talking about irrigation and what that does to the presentation of a golf course. Come on, guys, let's hit Walking the Fairways. Walking the Fairways, 3rd of November, 2020. As mentioned, we'll start walking the fairways by looking up in the sky and the weather that's been happening around the place. And I mentioned there a couple of episodes ago that La Nina was going to be, for, well, was forecast by the Bureau of Meteorology, which La Nina brings up above average rainfall to the eastern parts of Australia. And that is really starting to kick in. It has been over the last sort of month or so in uh, central western New South Wales and the southern parts of New South Wales into northern Victoria and so on. And it's really starting to kick off at the moment. We're having big rainfall totals continue to uh, accumulate through the central west, the southern coast, the southwestern New South Wales, uh, down into central Victoria, and now really firing up in southeastern Queensland. And uh, it's really, really starting to, and even into the northern parts of New South Wales, northern Tableland. So really starting to see a lot of regional golf courses will now see their dams starting to fill up, lots of runoff with temperatures now really warming up through through late spring and uh, and water starting to really accumulate totals through the soil now. There's good moisture content. Golf courses are going to have grass hopefully jumping out of their skin. And uh, as we start to ease in towards the end of the year, total contrast to last year, which was devastating on many fronts. And this year looks like we're going to have some really, really good quality presentation out there from a lot of golf courses, which have been, haven't been able to fight the drought of the last couple of years. And now we've finally got a bit of a turn in that weather. I've mentioned in the past these sorts of the rain cycles that that come about with La Nina around sort of seven to ten years and it's been pretty close to that uh, sort of seven year mark eight year mark since we had floods and and high rainfall totals west of the Great Divide in many parts of New South Wales and uh, and southeastern Queensland and and also central Victoria so um, really good things if you're if you're doing a bit of travel regionally and I know I've spoken to a number of people that are doing it, that haven't done it for a long time, traveling regionally throughout New South Wales, especially because I know a lot of that area and, and people are really enjoying this. Uh, they're, they're planning it. They're looking forward to it. They're playing courses. I've, I've spoken to plenty of people. They're playing courses that, um, that they haven't seen before. They're really enjoying 
seeing some of these different types of golf courses, lesser known golf courses, and, and just enjoying golf and different scenery, different people, catching up with country people and, and the hospitality that comes from that. So that's why I was doing the golf travel segment, just to get you out there and some of my recommendations. You're going to go and play all sorts of different courses around as you travel and move. Now that now that Victorians are allowed to move within their state, the metro people, albeit a little bit in, in metro, metropolitan Melbourne, but people are now starting to be able to move around and uh, within their states, and now there's a little bit more interstate travel starting to open up um, very loosely. Uh, in Queensland, for example, now the border's open to regional New South Wales residents, so anywhere except metropolitan Sydney, you're allowed to travel across that border into Queensland. So uh, if you if you like, and obviously Queensland people are allowed to come down across the border into New South Wales without any concerns of a... Um, a quarantine period in heading home back across the border. So look, there's there's things are starting to change, things are starting to happen. Part of that's the weather. A little bit of that's from COVID restrictions easing in, in states, but we're really happy to see some of these rains coming down as the temperatures start to warm up and golf courses really start to show off their stripes, literally. Moving into Oxley Golf Club, which is in the southwest of Brisbane City itself. Now, I've seen a little bit of information coming from Oxley, and this is part of some of the courses taking time at this time of the year just to do a few little rebuilds and bits and pieces. They've been rebuilding and resurfacing their 16th tee, and they've, been, and they've put down wintergreen cooch on that tee surface there, which will make a really nice tight surface for people as you, um, as you see that grow in and start to mature certainly over the next couple of months, specifically because of the, the warmer conditions, it's going to really um, tighten up, give it a really, really good playing surface. So that's something that Oxley have been up to. Uh, if you know that course, if you've played that course, if you're a regular there or a member there, you'll uh, you'll notice the work that's been going on there on their 16th. And they've, they've also turfed out the carry area, what we call the carry area on the 18th hole. Now that's carry area is the tee to the fairway that you carry with your drive. Hence why it's called the carry. Now they've resurfaced that and turfed that out, um, basically just to cover up. It's an area that's often neglected, basically left to its own devices. Usually irrigation's not in those regions. We concentrate irrigation in, in areas of high maintenance, being you know, regularly mown, regularly trafficked with with play, and and the carry area is often left out. But sometimes they get they get really bad. They dry it in, in periods of drought. It gets lots of traffic from carts and, and concentrated traffic from walking from the tee to the fairway. So they get a bit hammered, as it were, and they can get bare areas creeping in. You get a lot of tree root issues as well in those areas as well. Um, but look, the 18th at, at Oxley, they've covered that over. They've re-turfed that out. So they've got a good grass cover again, no doubt for presentation, but also it's um, balls that are mishit and that sort of stuff. You can get hammered with really horrible lies and things like that. And that's an area that they identified they wanted to repair. Their membership decided and the club decided that they wanted to improve that. So they've rebuilt that and turfed it over for good presentation. They've also in recent months, I think it was only in August that they'd uh, rebuilt the greenside bunkers on the seventh hole as well. So they've been busy at Oxley moving forward, right time of the year, people starting to get out and play golf a little bit more. And now that, that Queensland's opened up to regional New South Wales travellers, they might see some um, people visiting Oxley as well to play golf. So that's what's been happening up there. Huntley Golf or Huntley Heritage. You may have heard these two names uh, over the last few years. You may or may not, but it was a golf course development 
that, like I said, was previously known as Huntley Heritage. That's how I know it. It was being developed in the Wollongong area south of Sydney. So obviously we're in New South Wales um, at a place called Avondale, which is West Dapto. Now, if you know that area south of Sydney, I know it a little bit, not very extensively. This Huntley Golf or Huntley Heritage, as it was known, was part of a large scale development that was going to happen in this area at Avondale. It was a, a, a housing development around a golf course, a resort, day spa, the 18-hole the golf course that was a uh, resort course that was pegged to be built there was a Greg Norman design. I remember, I think it was only last year, might have 12 or 18 months ago, that was on the news that Norman flew in in his chopper to announce that, you know, he was doing the design. Um, they wanted to, to push with these new owners that had not so long ago had, had taken control of it from another previous developer. They got the big fanfare and the big name and Norman flew in and said, this is what's happening. I'm part of, my name's going to be part of it. It's going to be a great facility. There was also going to be a high-performance golf centre. They wanted it to be a big development area in uh, in golf and, and certainly a performance base for golf in New South Wales is what they were, they were their goal was. I remember reading up about that also. It was going to be developing an old disused coal mine site. And, and this particular site was at the base of this beautiful escarpment. If you know the south coast, it's pushed right up against the base of the escarpment, which, which is sort of... It's got the sandstone cliff feel of the Blue Mountains. It's absolutely beautiful down there. Um, and to use an old mine, uh, disused site, a neglected site, a, a way of rehabilitating these areas, and, and Magenta Shores is a classic you may or may not know, was an, an old disused rubbish tip there along the beach, and now it's a beautiful Magenta Shores golf course and resort. Well, this is the sort of thing when I love to see golf course developments rehabilitate lost areas, wasteland areas, areas that are have been sort of you know neglected over time and and I've, you know once they're finished their their commercial value is gone uh, it's good to be able to re rehabilitate with with something beautiful like this uh, and certainly obviously housing and it's an ex an area that had been targeted for a population expansion in that region so there was obviously lots of housing and stuff going on in there and that's all key part of these developments happening but uh, it has completely fallen over after years of working through with council and it was a and 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 local owners in the area and because obviously lots of people struggle with with change and, and high density living and that sort of stuff if if they're they're paddocks and farmlands and all those sorts of things which which are in that West Dapto area near the escarpment as large scale properties and not dense dense housing so they worked through a lot of this stuff but the uh, the company that owned the site went into liquidation and it all fell apart. Now that didn't include Norman, Greg Norman and his companies involved and, and Greg Norman Design and so on, weren't financially involved from what I've read uh, in the development itself. They were just attached to it with the design. So they weren't financially part of it. The owners obviously would have um, engaged them to do the design and so on. But like I said, all completely gone sadly. And, uh, and now that site is up for sale and knowing how difficult it was for the previous owners to work through council, it could be a very difficult exercise to um, to pick up and continue on with. I got to know a little bit about this project while I was working at Katoomba Golf Club because the developers that we had, we actually spoke to the previous owners of this property back when it was Huntley Heritage and um, what they were looking to do. And we were certainly looking at um, some of the stuff that they were looking at on course, what they were going to build, how they were going to build, all those sorts of things as, as we look to do new 
new ways of construction and things like that as well. It's always good to to sort of see what the latest and greatest is, and that's what they were they were about to embark on. Many times over, it changed hands, fell apart, and like I said, it's all completely gone. So uh, west of Dapto, there in the Wollongong area, Huntley Heritage sits quiet and dormant again. That old coal mine site is uh, is going to sit stagnant for a little while longer. Cobram Baruga Golf Resort down on the Murray. I've mentioned this in my golf travel segment. Now their old course is uh, is having some changes done to it. It's a 36 hole facility, the old course and the west course they have. The old course is having some changes done by Contour Golf. Now I've mentioned this design firm in the past. They've done plenty of work around the place and they are working down at Cobram. Now they're looking to uh, do some changes of the course. They're, they're they're going to be changing their hole numbering and obviously basically that means they're routing a little bit in the way that you work your way around the course um, because they want to have the start and finish be it the first and the 18th around what is the sporties club now that's at the southeastern corner of the property that's part of the amalgamated Cobbenbrugger golf and sporties club so that's where the, the bowling greens are or were it's like the old bowling club um, they've rejuvenated that facility. They're, they're going to have the golf course start and finish there, be it this, the old course. And Contour Golfer rebuilding the 18th green. They're moving a little bit shorter, rejigging around that area of that of the Sporties Club there. And with the 18th green comes a rebuilding of the 6th tee. So if you go down to Cobram in the next six months, as, as you know, you'd start to travel a little bit more, we get a little bit more out there, you'll see that there's some work going on down there. And some of this stuff looks really, really good. New bunkers, it's a whole new green. And a whole new tee complex for the six. So as as how that golf course will now finish on the 18th, it's going to be a new green facility, slightly slight changes to the hole, but they're keeping busy down there at Cobram with Contour Golf. Now I'll stick with Contour Golf because they're also working and just a little bit of a bounce around here, but Contour Golf are working at Quinana Golf Club at Callista over in Perth. In the uh, in the reach in the outer reaches of the suburbs of Perth in WA. Now, Callista's about 30 minutes, 35 minutes south of the city centre itself, and Contour Golf have, have sort of they're redesigning some of the greenside bunkers on the left of the ninth hole, which is uh, that basically there were these really large featureless bunkers around the green on the left, big flat round wide things that just had no style, no flair. And what they're doing is reducing the size slightly, but going to bring in some of that design flair, some of that style, some of those aesthetics that we love to see out on the course. It just grabs your attention, grabs your eyes, builds interest visually into what you, you're looking at and what you're playing around as you get around the golf course. And they've targeted their ninth there at Quinana. So that's what's happening. Contour Golf, busy all over the country. So this is obviously a they're a design firm that will work sort of east or west, anywhere in between, doesn't matter. And they're certainly keeping very, very busy. Uh, the ninth at Quinana is a par five. Now get this. I'm, and I'm going to say Quinana because it could be Quinana, could be some of the pronunciations of those suburbs in Perth can be quite difficult if you're not a local. I'm far from, but I do love Perth, um, having visited over there once before, and it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, with some incredible golf. But at Quinana, the ninth is a par five to finish the front nine, over 500 metres long. Now, that's a hell of a golf hole to finish your front. And the ninth green sits as you, well, you play it up towards the clubhouse, and it sits just more or less is the more predominant green outside the clubhouse views. 
uh, with the 19th green sort of adjacent to it as well, but the not the 18th green, sorry, adjacent to it. The ninth green is really the main one that you see outside the clubhouse. So I'm just going to throw out there that they've probably selected these areas to do because it's visually, it's viewed, sorry, from both sides. But when you arrive to the club, milling outside the clubhouse, heading off to the first tee when you're starting around, also there when you're when you're in the clubhouse looking out whether you be dining drinking socializing and so on out there as well and obviously to play the whole any areas on golf courses and we certainly did at katoomba you try and pick what you can get the most bang for your buck so if you can uh, target areas that uh, are key areas that you want to repair repair and improve on the golf course but also areas that add aesthetic value from the clubhouse you're usually going to pick them first because you're getting a double-sided hit which is always sort of why we did it. That's why a lot of places will pick those 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 particular areas to improve first because you're getting more bang for buck. Um, but like I said, the ninth is outside the clubhouse, and that's what's happening with Contour Golf there over at Cornana in WA. So a little bit of work happening there. Back to New South Wales, where we had previously talked about the Cobram Baruga, but uh, in New South Wales and, and obviously Huntley Heritage. So we'll stick with New South Wales a little bit longer. And Tallwoods Golf Resort. Now, you probably heard me talk about in, in a previous podcast episode. I'm a huge fan of Tallwoods since visiting there a few months ago. Can't wait to get back, honestly. Really, really excited about just Tallwoods in general. And and the new owners that I've mentioned that have been there now for, for a couple of years, um, they're starting to really invest in the property and invest in, in the golf course and trying to make it a destination golf again because there are a few other big names up in the north coast of New South Wales that you want to visit that have that have have got a much much larger name in terms of quality of course it's got more destination um more people going there and it's much more widely talked about and some of those places i talk about like bonville for example Uh, but tallwoods is starting to work really hard on getting your attention they really really are these new owners are working really really hard a family-based company and they're out of Sydney and they really want to make Torwoods something special again, which I'm so delighted to hear. And just some of the stuff that's going on, they're sticking to their word and they're doing more and more work. They've been re-turfing um, the Red Tea on the 11th. As they do have a really good ladies, a group membership of ladies around Torwoods that play regularly. And uh, that's one of the teas that was identified there to, to improve. The other one is a 17th Blue Tea. I'm a huge fan of the 17th absolutely mind-blowing tee shot and i'm glad to see that the blue tee is uh is being repaired and re-turfed they've also been purchasing some new golf course equipment uh, which is what we want to see as well uh, to make sure that they're able to keep doing and keep the course up to a great standard things like a bunker machine to to have better maintenance on the bunkers uh, keep them more consistent for you and a new utility vehicle for the golf course so that they can get around and do the bits and pieces that have got to be done. There's always work happening on a golf course and you need good gear to keep maintaining it at a high a high standard. So 10 points for Tallwoods. They are sticking to their word and continuing to improve the place. Still in New South Wales, and we head to the city of Sydney where at the top of the podcast, I mentioned there was a golf course that was going to get cut in half. That golf course is Moore Park. Now, sadly, and I say sadly from a golf point of view, sadly on the 27th of October, I'm pretty sure it was the 27th, could have been the 28th, but thereabouts, a, uh, there was a council meeting for Sydney City 
and it was voted that they wanted to cut Moore Park in half down to nine holes. Now, you've got to understand that Moore Park is, uh, is a council land. It's, it's on council land. So they've decided, the, the Sydney City Council, under the direction or the from the mayor of, uh, of the mayor being Clover Moore, that they want to cut Moore Park from 18 holes down to nine. And I've talked about this in the past. Uh, it was shot down. It's been shot down a number of times. And they'd, they'd obviously not taken this vote on earlier this year because um, they didn't have the numbers, finally got themselves sorted, went to a vote, got it voted in, and it's gone through. Now, that was only just recently, like I said, uh, not that long ago. And it will be interesting to see how this this pans out because they've talked about, Clovermore especially, have, have talked about wanting to open up that space to more people, not just golfers. They believe that having a golf course of that size on council land specifically only for golfers is not the best use of that green space. So they want to cut it down to nine. Their argument is that golf is dwindling and they don't believe that that, that that space is warranted anymore for 18 holes. So they want to open it up for the general public. And look, they want to keep nine holes and the driving range, I do believe. They've recently rebuilt the driving range over the last few years and it's a great facility now. But to cut that down to nine will be pretty interesting. There's a couple of plans out as to which end they remove from golf and bring down to nine holes. But that's obviously the detail that they'll now work through and, and try and work towards when this is going to actually happen. Now, I probably struggle a little bit because their argument is that they need more green space for people. So there's been a lot of high-density, uh, large-scale unit blocks built around that southern end of Sydney City in recent years, and I think that's probably where they're coming from. But they're saying that there's not enough green space around in the city of Sydney. Now, I find that a little bit hard to get my head around because literally down the street from Moore Park Golf Club is Centennial Park. If you don't know Sydney that well, Centennial Park is around about 150 hectares, I think. That's a guesstimate from memory from what I can recall reading. 150 hectares across a couple of, of um, parkland spaces, um, which, is, which, in, which creates Centennial Park. It is not a small space. I've been there, enjoyed it. Uh, with my wife, with friends, for a wedding, all sorts of different things. It is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful parkland in Sydney. And it is so bloody enormous. It uh, Honestly, I've never seen it full. I, don't know, I know that sounds stupid to say, full. It's not. I don't mean physically full with people standing shoulder to shoulder, but uh, lots of people use it, lots of people enjoy it. It is absolutely enormous. And it's uh, a wonderful space. But to sit there and say that nine holes is going to make a big difference on uh on the space the open space for people to use i think is a crock and uh i don't agree with with this decision that's my personal view but uh will be interesting to see how this pans out a lot of the things that have been brought up like this have been shot down in the past and i mentioned marrickville i've mentioned warringah in in the past we've talked about albert park down in melbourne all these things have been brought up in the past by different councils they've all been shot down this one's been voted through it will be interesting to see how it's going to pan out over the next sort of few months and years uh, what sort of upheaval there'll be, what sort of petitions there'll be from, from golfers and from people who enjoy the game uh, to try and keep more park. And more parks, it is an old golf course as well. So it's got a lot of history. 
Um, it's it's a well-known golf course. It's it's probably the nicest, probably the nicest full public access golf course closest to the city of Sydney. Um, and that says a lot because it, it allows people to get into the sport. That's why they rebuilt their driving range uh, to, to, again, give people an opportunity to, to get into the sport a little bit. It's, it's a great nine, uh, Aiden Hole golf course with great history, uh, good walking track, you know, towered over by the city itself. And, um, you know, it's going to be sad to see it go if that's the way it ends up. But one to watch to see when they put, start to put dates together for things to happen. And uh, I, for one, hope that it doesn't go through, but it's been voted through by council for the moment. Now we move to Melbourne because things have changed in Melbourne. Uh, as I mentioned, there's been an easing of their COVID lockdown restrictions, which is great to see Melbournians start to be able to enjoy the sport again, to get out there, albeit with limited distance movement uh, and limited numbers. And that's changing regularly at the moment down in Melbourne. Started off with groups of two. Now it's gone, I think it's going to, or it's just gone to groups of four. People are allowed to get out and start to get into retail a little bit more. So you have some of your golf retail stores opening up as well, which is great to see people getting back into the sport. And I think there's a new appreciation for it down there in Melbourne, particularly where they've been locked out for, I don't know how many weeks now, it's been crazy. Um, but I talk a bit more about this with Roscoe, Ross Flanagan, in my golf chat segment coming up shortly. So we'll delve into that a little bit more, but some work, this is this lockdown has given golf courses an, an unusual amount of time with no traffic to do work. So because you're still allowed to go to work, green keepers and golf clubs have earmarked certain jobs to be done, which has been great. So some of the lesser known courses, courses like Warburton Golf Club, which is in the upper reaches of the Yarra River to the, to the Northeast of Melbourne, uh, they've returfed their ninth tee. Now, getting into these, I've talked a lot about returfing tees, rebuilding tees. It's great to see this stuff happening because tees are such a high-use area. And obviously, we know greens are, but tees are somewhere that you still want quality surfaces. You still want them to be nice and level. You still want them to be smooth. You still want good finish. You still want good quality turf surfaces to play golf on. That, that's it's a key. It's a high area of golf, even though you're not putting along the ground of it you still want to be able to play and start each hole on a great starting space. So it's good to see golf courses ticking these over. And usually they're long forgotten. Usually they're not rebuilt for like 40 years or, you know, it's ridiculous how long you really try and maintain them and keep them going. Um, so they are left on the back burner forever and a day. And it's good to see them slow, slowly starting to tick these off in all these courses. So Warburton's one, great looking golf course down there on the Yarra. And uh, their ninth tee, which they've rebuilt, they've rebuilt, resurfaced, re-turfed, which has also included new irrigation on the tee itself, which is great to see. So a smaller club, get out there, go to it. If, you, if you're able to, go and visit Warburton. It looks like a great golf course as well. It's certainly one that I'll be putting on my list when I get to go into Melbourne again one day, whenever that is allowed to happen. So that's what they've been up to there. We'll jump to Heidelberg Golf Club, which is on the banks of the Plenty River, which is at it flows into the Yarra. It's at a township or a suburb called Lower Plenty, which is again northeast of Melbourne City. It's not as far out of town as Warburton, but it's in the city limits. Um, they've also been busy in lockdown with a new eighth tea complex, and that's included a new path which runs from the seventh green uh, around the back and down the side, the eighth tee, 
and then gets you on down towards the fairway. And they've also, in rebuilding that tee and resurfacing it, they've also realigned it because quite often you'll find as courses age, as they grow, as tree lines grow and they become wider and start to impinge on, on fairway lines and, and, and your hitting lines from the tee, um, some of the tees and, and over time fairways change, there could be bunkers in place and, and so on that, that adjust where um, you want to um, get your aim to down the hole to start the hole. Uh, you'll find that tees often are not where they're now wanting you to play golf. So it's a subconscious thing. It's it's usually an old thing. Sometimes it works on purpose to adjust people to, a, uh, for example, along a boundary. You'll have a tee aimed away from the boundary further than the actual hole itself just to get people subconsciously to aim further away. Uh, these are old things that you'll leave alone, for example, if you don't have to do a lot of changes to the boundary holes on an older golf course but where you can uh, we try and adjust the alignment of tees it makes life a little bit easier when you just stand over the ball and align yourself you naturally align yourself with the length that the tee is positioned so it's, it's, it's often a design thing that's um that's never really fixed very much and um you know like i said there's pluses and minuses to how it's done but um down at down at Heidelberg, they've uh, they've hit their eighth tee and they've incorporated a new path around that uh, eight, seventh green eighth tee complex. Now we bounce down to Tassie. Now some, there's been some images doing the rounds of Arm End Golf Course. Now Arm End, A-R-M, Arm End, two words, Arm End uh, in Tassie. Now it's being done by Crafter Mobford from Golf Strategies, full new golf course, full new golf course down at Hobart. It's one to keep an eye on, I've talked about it, but now they've just released some images that are showing you the whole numberings and where they are going to run and the routing is laid out on the peninsula that is Armand Golf Course. It's a multi-use space, so it's not just for golf. There's gonna be lots of things incorporated into this area, public access golf course, great new facility being done. And some of these aerial images that are coming out with the whole numberings will just give you a little taste of a layout. Now, I've said it in the past that this golf course is going to be fantastic. And uh, and now you really get a sense of just how that those holes are going to flow around the land. I'll see if I can get some of these images and, and put them up for you on my social media pages just to give you another little taste, a little teaser uh, that Crafter and Mogford have done. So if you follow their pages, you'll probably have seen but I will see what I can do to get them out there for you as well. And uh, it just shows you some of the routings and how it's going to sit. It's just a, an incredible piece of ground that probably you wouldn't think you'd see a golf course on, but I'm glad they're going to be able to do it in the right way. And uh, they're looking to, you know, it's, it's a conservation area as well. So this is the way that golf courses are going. They're doing things differently, doing them more beneficial for, for the environment as well as the area. A bit of conservation happening on in the way of trying to build a golf course as well to retain the spaces as green space and um i think this is gonna you know it's a it's a modern way in australia of building golf courses and i think it's going to be the better way of doing it in the future with multi-purpose use space so it's not just only for golf yeah arm end like i said this one's good keep an eye on it and that's walking the fairways guys let's get into Golf Chat with Ross Flanagan. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to another a 
golf chat segment. This one uh, had had this guest on in the past, Ross Flanagan from you may know him from My Love of Golf podcast, from the Mental Mastery, from Golf Rules Questions. Ross Flanagan, welcome again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. How you going, mate? Steve, I'm really good. Thank you for that introduction. Jeez, I was about to say that guy's on a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Mate, you can add this one as a guest on on top of it, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. You're uh, a bit of a podcast wizard now, mate. Uh, well, I enjoy having a chat, as you know, Steve. It's uh, one of my strong points is having a chat, and I do that uh, on a daily basis. I get to chat golf every day, so it's just part of what I do, and I just uh, enjoy you know the format of podcasting. I enjoy talking to people about golf. I uh, enjoy talking to interesting people about interesting topics. So it really does fit in well with uh how I like to roll, Steve. So thanks for again for you know connecting and having a, having another chat. It's been good to see you. Good to see you back into the podcasting. You know now the baby's uh, yes focus on that and um, yeah that was the- yeah yeah no no thanks mate. It's um it was a you know a little bit of a break obviously while we uh, we uh, were fortunate enough to give birth to our little baby girl. So getting back into the swing of it with. Uh, you know, trying to get back on the podcast and get back in the groove is great fun. I love uh, I love doing it and just to try and give people bits of information and where they can and love having people like yourself on board. So, mate, thank you for coming back. And the world's a different place, uh, more so again for probably you guys being Melbournians and Victorians than, than say, for, for myself in New South Wales and, and some other states of the country. How has life been in Victoria in this sort of a serious lockdown? Because we all look from the outside in and we're going, geez, wow, but what was it, the best part of – 12 weeks or so i can't eight ten weeks how long was lockdown for in a serious level for you guys where there was no golf allowed it was august the 6th that um august the 6th i think that it went into this what we called the stage four lockdown here in melbourne which meant that uh you know basically all forms of sport were cancelled uh, all forms of public gatherings were cancelled uh, including golf all forms of uh, you know retail businesses other than essential services you know supermarkets and uh, things like that were shut so you know me being involved in the uh the drum and golf world as a franchisee of, of one of the stores in melbourne you know we had essentially our business closed for you know that time up until yesterday so yesterday was a fairly significant day for retailers cafes and you know other businesses pubs and so on and so forth in melbourne because we were allowed to open our doors for the first time retail is uh, we've all got limits on how many people we can have in the store and things like that and there's a whole heap of other restrictions for cafes and outdoor dining and how many people you can and can't be and all of that sort of thing. And But you know what? It was just a great uh, feeling yesterday to be able to open the doors for the store, um, not have to sort of stop people at the front front of the, the store, you know, and serve them at a counter, um, you know, click and collect environment, you know, which was you know, awkward, but, uh, you know, welcome people in and, and get them, you know, seeing and touching and feeling and talking about golf because we know in Melbourne that golf has been going absolutely cocoa bananas in uh, you know, places like New South Wales, Queensland, basically all Australia. And uh, so it's just good to be able to start, you know, riding a bit of that wave. And there's so many great new golf products that have come out in that time. You know, that's that's one of the things uh, with the business sort of being closed. Um, one of the things that kept us busy because we had to go and unpack boxes every day because all the manufacturers just kept sending sending this new product, which has been great. But yeah, everyone says, oh, your online business must have been, you know, booming. But um I think every online business during this time has, has boomed, um, whether you're in New South Wales or Victoria. But, you know, Drum and Golf have a very good um, online web store and website. So, you know, they handle that on behalf of all of the stores in Australia. 
And uh, you know, so we were just there for click and click. You know, people wanted to come and pick up something because they needed it, whatever, or we needed to post it or whatever. Yeah, you know, so we did all of that. So no, it's but Steve, it's you know the the thing that I mentioned yesterday to someone is really has made us all appreciate what golf means to us and and how valuable it is in our life and day and our week to week outside of working in the golf industry but just as as golfers and players yeah. and, and and what level of enjoyment we get out of it um that's probably been the big thing that we've all had a nice realignment and a, and a, a, you know been forced to remember what golf means so that's really that's been really nice uh, and i i reconnect I agree with you, mate. I, th I think um, there's certainly that level, new level of appreciation. And, and we're, we certainly are in New South Wales. We're hearing about people that have got back into the game, people that have had a break and come back, people that are wanting to get into the game because it's one of the few things that you're allowed to do during lockdown and, and they're experiencing new things and, and in the sport itself and new com new levels of camaraderie and, and friendship and socialising to a certain extent, obviously, I mean, I'm not talking about big groups and that sort of stuff, but I mean, it, it's it's become this different level of appreciation of enjoying the outdoors and, and, and I think possibly more for, for yourself being in an extended lockdown down there that to just be able to be outside not not necessarily the golf, but the fact that you can now get back out there and be outside. It's this you're almost like seeing the environment for the first time again, smelling the fresh air for the first time again, without dramatizing it too much. That's sort of kind of how it became when we're allowed back out. And uh, I think everyone's really seen this positive take on being allowed outside to to play that sport and just get around there. And and uh, like golf is always a personal challenge as much as it's an enjoyable pastime. Um, and I think we're, we've, we've fell back in love with the sport rather than it being something that we just catch up with people on a regular basis, whether it be weekly, fortnightly, whatever it might be. So, um, yeah. I was just going to say, Steve, you know, you get reminded of that fact when, when and this is not to politicise anything, and, you know, everyone's got their own opinions and, uh, on, on what happened and, and the controls and, and, you know, golf is safe and it should have been able to be played all the time and, and whatever. So let's not talk about the rules mm. and what they were and weren't. But when you do get forced to only be allowed out of your house for an hour, yeah, that's tough. Day with one other person from your house to exercise, you know, and then when you when you drive in the gates, and very very fortunate for me to be able to drive in the gates of Peninsula Kingswood as I did. I've only been to the golf course once since. we have been pretty busy getting everything ready, but you know, when I got the chance to drive into Peninsula Kingswood and just see the course in the pristine condition and just go out there by myself. I just went out there by myself and played sort of four or five holes and, you know, had a putt and had a chip, you know, on the course. It was, it was exactly everything you just described. It was really nice. It was really great to be just out there being on a golf course. Yeah. Yeah. No, good. it was really good. No, it's, uh, I'm sure it's been a delayed reaction to you guys being able to do it down there. And, um, I think you're probably appreciating it more than, more than others have. And like I said, we've, we've been able to enjoy it for a lot longer um, but mate, look, let's let's move away from the lock. Sorry, well, can I can I can I just give a shout out to a couple of special absolutely absolutely have missed uh, their golf um, in Melbourne very very much so, and uh, I just want to give a very special shout out to um, Jerome Hughes, Christian Welsh, Cameron Munster from the Melbourne Storm. Those guys missed their golf tremendously, but I think for us Melburnians it was worth it. Eh? <laughs> 
<laughs> Hello, Storm. Come on, mate. Come on. It's still, still fresh. I just had to get that in. I'm, I'm a Western Sydney boy, and it's still a bit raw with the Panthers going down, mate. <laughs> we might have been locked down, but we still won the NRL premiership. Yeah, so well done to those boys. In, in the- massive, massive golfers, Munster, uh, Welshy, and Jerome, and uh, a couple other boys from the Storm. But I know, I know those guys. I miss their golf, but. Um, but yeah. Oh look, and you know what? A shout out to to anyone who's been able to um, to achieve any of these sorts of things in this year that was, whether it be like you know, so proud that we're able to have a healthy baby. You know, whether you're a sports fan, you can follow. There's all sorts of stuff that people have 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 sort of had to work through this adversity in in the year that was. And lots of people are achieving things they probably never thought they could or would or you know might happen. That strangely enough have, have turned out that way. And for for Melbourne as a city and the sporting teams that come from there to hold both championship cups, as it were, for for both of our biggest uh, sporting um, competitions in Australia, be it AFL and NRL, I think is just that's a huge deal. Um, and I, I think you know no one's done it harder than Melbourne. And um, you know I think I think it's wonderful and, and certainly. You know, it's it's a big thing, and I think for a bit of positivity, just as a city, I know what it's like when your city wins. Like when when the Swans won, oh, my wife's a Mad Swans fan, and I am too. When the Swans won the premiership, I think it was twenty twelve. It's just a big deal. Like you feel so proud, and and I think sure for 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 an NRL side, the Storm they're, they're such an incredible organisation and a sporting team um, to do it this year in NRL. Um, is incredible, and for the Tigers to do it in AFL is just spectacular. So I think to um, yeah, for Melbourne to do it is is great to see from that side of it, and, and I'm sure it's a bit of a buzz for the city to sit sit back at home and be forced, in a sense, to watch the seasons. Um, would be a, a hell of a lot of good stuff coming out of it. So yeah, big shout out to those guys. They can get out and play golf now too. So um, once once they get off the once they get off the beer, <laughs> that's right. We get past Mad Monday, which I think they've done now. So. But, mate, look, like I said, let's get away from the COVID side of stuff. It has been difficult. We're all aware of that. Um, and you talked about, from a retail sense, being in the drum and golf world that you are, in the city there, that all the supplies, there's been new equipment coming out. There's been these sorts of things happening in the, in the golf equipment side that people haven't been able to see. You mentioned in a, in a store, you like to see touch, feel. We like to see all these bits and pieces. And when it's click and collect, it's more just the usables and the, and the things you're going to turn over, like I imagine golf balls and, and those sorts of things that people would do the click and collect for rather than a new driver that's come out. I mean, it, I'm seeing my, my, my Instagram feeds and Facebook feeds have been plastered with all the companies bringing out new gear in a COVID year. What, what are some of this stuff? I said Callaway or TaylorMade or Mizuno's or whatever. What are these guys coming out for? I'm sure it wasn't that long ago that there was a new Callaway and that there was a new TaylorMade. What, how can they be bringing another thing out? To me, it's a little bit like mobile phones. You buy the latest and greatest, and then six months later, there's something new. How can it be that much better? Well, it's a pretty competitive space, you know, across all the brands. You know, everyone, the golf, big golf brands are, you know, fighting for the hearts and minds and, and golf bags of the golf consumer. And, you know, it's a technology-driven game. You know, everyone's looking for an edge. Everyone's looking for a way to get more distance, more straightness, you know, more height, more something, you know, the people are looking for something more out of their golf equipment all the time. And, you know, and that really does appeal to us as golfers as, as wanting to improve. Yeah. So, 
you know, everyone as a consumer is on a cycle. You know, you don't. You, some people jump from new product to new product very quickly, but most people have put a, a set of clubs and then and then they'll look for that level of improvement. You know, their, their games improved or or sometimes regressed, and they need some more help and support. So, yeah, you know, the manufacturers are really trying to make stuff to suit all the varieties and variations of golfers in the market. Now, you know, they tend to have to do it a little bit quicker um, because just technology advances and everyone else's advances. So it just, for me, and this is just a personal opinion, this is not a you know, qualification from anyone's told me this, but just they've always got to be competing. Yeah, okay. You know, and that form of competing for them is to make a new product. Now, in a product sense and a you know, brand sense, you know, they get on the life cycles, you know, so when I worked at Mercedes-Benz, you know, the cars had longer life cycles, you know, you'd have a new seat class and it'd be seven years. Now in golf, you know, some brands have a 12-month life cycle for their new driver. An example of that would be the TaylorMade Sim product. It's, yep. it's a sort of, let's just round it off to 12 months. So there'll be a new Sim type version driver early next year. Yeah, right. some, other, some other manufacturers have longer life cycles, like so Titleist has a like an 18 month cadence. So there's obviously a new Titleist TSI 2 and TSI 3 just about to launch in November. So it's been sort of maybe 18 months, you know, let's say two years in round numbers, um, but they've had that. Ping usually has that sort of 16, 18 month life cycle for their driving. So everyone sort of has a, has a different cadence. Callaway has a 12 month life cycle. So they'll have, but they've got, well now three, but they had two drivers. They had the Maverick family and the Epic Flash family. So one year they bring out the Epic Flash, and then the next year they bring out the Maverick. And then, yeah, okay. So they've got a new driver every year, but the drivers are on two two year life cycle. Right. It's a new one, the GB twenty one. The great they bought the great big Bertha back. So yeah, there's a whole heap of machinations on new product, but essentially, you know, they they survive on on building new clubs that are going to make you go straighter, further, faster, longer, and so on and so forth. And you know what? It's it's fun being part of that because you know you're never not trying a new golf club and you're never not comparing and testing and all that sort of thing. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. But I can see from the consumer mindset how sometimes that can be a little bit um, can, can appear to be a bit daunting or overwhelming. You know, staying in touch with all the back technology and all the changes and and that, and there are a lot of changes. Yeah, you know, you're bombarded. Oh, look, totally you are. And I'll use me as an example because it wasn't that long ago. And I laugh because I think it is now in, in, in um, golf equipment terms. But I was looking at the, what is it, the M4 TaylorMade driver. And when, when they were released, and I, I think Dustin was using MDJ and, and that sort of stuff, some of the big tour players on TV. And I was like, wow, geez, I tell you what, it's about time I updated from, wait for it, my R7 Taylor made, um, <laughs> but well, that's an example of you know you're sort of I guess a little bit more traditional. You know you've had your R7. Yeah, I I couldn't count how many drivers I've had in my bag since the R7. I did have an I had two R7s. I had the R7 and the R7 425. Yeah, right. Was probably still one of my all-time unicorn drivers. That one. I don't know why I still don't have it, but it, oh, <laughs> I don't keep it for posterity. I know I don't have it in the bag, but I love that drive. But you know, you had the R7, then you went to the M4, and, and now it might be time to look for something else. And, you know, you would come into the, the Sim family on, on a TaylorMade and find the, the new fit for you in, in that one. And it might be something else, but, you know, that, that would be the progression. Yeah. Some people change more frequently. They change every every time there's a new driver. They've got to change to the next one. Or, 
you know, they're searching for improvement. So sometimes people just fall out of love. It's a little bit like a relationship, you know, they fall out of love sometimes and they've got to get into a new relationship to, you know, regain the confidence and regain their, you know, refine that sort of golf game that they're, they're missing. And, and sometimes that just means they stop a relationship with one club and have to move into the new club and relationships sometimes don't go too long. Interesting analogy, and I, and I think it's very pertinent because you, it is a bit like that. Like for me, it's my revolving door of putters because obviously it's the putter that's the issue. It's not the person on the end of the stick. So that's the way I, that's the way I justify my putting. But um, you know, it, it's it's very much that I when you get to a point in your in your in your golfing skill level where you you're confident and you're scoring okay, it doesn't matter what your handicap is that you feel comfortable. And, and your game is at a level where you go, okay, you know what, I'm still improving, but now I'm starting to feel more together with it. One thing drops off. Whatever that one thing is, which for me, it's usually putting, um, and it's from a lack of golf, but I'll fall out of love with the stick and I'll just go, it's a confidence thing. I've got no confidence standing over the ball. There's nothing wrong with the, putt, with the club. I know that it's me, but if I then find something that just feels right and you just look at it and you go, you know what, this is the shiny new toy I've been looking for, and for whatever reason, on the, on the synthetic green in the drum and golf shop, I'm, I'm nailing him from everywhere. And I go, you know what? This, this is it. This is the one. And, uh, and then you, it, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a love relationship where when you fall out of it for, and everyone's got different, different time frames that when it happens and, and it does, you, you, you do have to kind of move on. It's very hard to get that confidence level back, I find. Well, mate, as, as we said, there, there are some people that, you know, just do that and, and thankfully for golf shops, there are people like that. But there are some people that, you know, don't do that and they really do wait till there's some, you know, very definitive advantage that they can find mm. in, in upgrading. Because let's face it, you know, they're not getting uh, cheaper. You know, we're talking drivers now in the in the vicinity of, you know, 800 to $900 in, you know, that sort of sphere. Not all, um, but, you know, let's say generally that the new ones are in that space for the big brand. You can certainly go, the price points are lower than that um, yep. for different brands. And sometimes they're just as good and perform just as well for, for different players. So, you know, that the, the, the value of testing and being able to go to a store like mine where I've got, you know, pretty much most drivers, every driver has a demo, every loft is a demo, every variety is a demo, maybe not every single one. But, you know, you can come into me and, and test those drivers without plastic on them, test the different shafts. And, and we put a lot of value in that fitting process and, and really trying to, you know, give people the confidence that when they do get fitted for a driver, use drive, you know, all irons or whatever club, but you know, let's use the driver. When they do get that, we've given them the opportunity to improve. We've shown them and be able to demonstrate that their old one with their current swing was, you know, this result, and that result might be going to the right too often. You know, a bit too much slice. Um, bit too much spin, bit too much uh, launch, bit too much loft. So, you know, all things that sacrifice distance. And then we might be able to find them a new driver and using your example, you know, from the M4 or the R7 that has new technology, which is designed to improve a lot of those things or help mm. improve a lot of those things without really having to spend a lot of time going through mechanics. A lot of people, yeah. you know, just don't want to put the time and investment into the mechanics, i.e. lessons. Yeah. So, you know, they can find equipment that um, that can help. You know, so the new Great Big Bertha GB21, you know, it's a draw bias driver in, in the main. Very high, yeah, right. MOI, very high MOI, very high 
MOI stands for moment of inertia. So that's the forgiveness factor. Um, yep. And it's got it's built in with a little bit of a drawback. So if, if that person, you know, comes in and they have that slice and they're just want, wanting a bit of help to straighten it up, you know, now a driver alone doesn't straighten Device. It doesn't, I say this a lot to people, it doesn't turn a 15 yard fade or slice into a 12 yard beautiful draw, but it, it helps mitigate it. And if we can, if we can find the other factors um, that are contributing towards this loss of distance or loss of straightness, you know, like getting the, the right, most appropriate shaft, you know, so many different shafts and shaft weights and shaft flexes and, and kick points and so on and so forth. And, you know, the tech heads will know what I'm talking about and the ones that aren't can go and research it. But, you know, getting the right shaft through a fitting process is really important, and that yeah. has a massive impact on on distance. That can you know through reducing spin or you know reducing you know, undesirable ball flights, you know undesirable launch conditions, and so on and so forth. It can have a massive impact on that. So you know when the technology does change quickly, you get access to that, and and these incremental little changes can can make a difference to a lot of golfers. You know, like three, four, five more fairways around. You know, can equate to a couple of shots and yeah yeah you know, if you said to someone that you know you make a change in your equipment it's going to save you a shot to a couple of shots around over you know six months period you know you add that up you, you depending on the level of golf you are you take that wouldn't you? so yeah I hope yeah absolutely the long way of saying yeah you know, the value of getting fitted and the technology does help and there are there are clubs that are designed to help you know that r7 that you had yeah, if you if you look at that now and put that down beside the Sim Max, for example, or the Sim, you know, different shape, so much bigger. You can see where the forgiveness is and and, and wasn't, you know, the the, the um, uh, twist face technology in that Sim tailor made driver is designed to help the ball that you know comes off the heel. Otherwise, in, in the R seven would be like a heel cut. Yeah, um, you know, it's designed to help the ball come straight, come back to the middle. Also, you know, the toe, the big toe draw. You know, the, the, the face slopes away from the, the direction of play and pushes the ball to the right. So the toe draw ends up more in the middle rather than starting online and en ending up on the left of the fairway from the right hand. So much, so much stuff going on. Yeah, there's, a, there's, cer there's certainly a lot in the detail, isn't it? Where they've, um, that, that's where, you know, all those little extra things help. And, and you get to see that when you go to, to uh, your local club and your local professional, if you go to a drum and golf store or wherever it is, your local golf shop, whatever it might be. Um, and certainly for a place like yours, where I know which I've been to, where, you, like you said, the biggest thing I love in these modern day golf stores, like your drum and golf one, is that you've got the facilities, like you mentioned, to try it out. It's not just look at it, feel it, you know, have a half a swing in the aisle. You can actually have a red hot go next to yours side by side, next to your own gear. And see the real difference. I would always encourage, and, and where we where we try to encourage people to bring their own club, so we can really demonstrate the benefits of something. You know, making an investment in something new. One hundred percent. Yeah, well, I'm in Franklin Street in the city, right? So obviously, I don't have a driving range there. I don't have any of that that I can yep. get access to. But what I do have is a whole truckload of technology, as in a full swing golf simulator, uh, four of them, and and the GC uh, launch monitor. So you know, I've got a couple of different measuring devices, and those things really just help oh. a good fitter understand you know what changes to make you know it's like a doctor you know putting their stethoscope on your on your chest and having a, a listen and poking the yeah you know the stick on your tongue and having a look down there and going okay we need you need to try that
Yep. And that's what we do in fitting sets. You know, we get the numbers, we have a look at the spin, we have a look at the lawns, we have a look at the ball speed, we have a look at the swing characteristics and the shot shape and all that. And we look at what they're using and we're looking at the all the different variables and saying, right, let's try this one. We don't always get it right first go, but it might be try this one, then we try this one, and we just try and narrow it down and make the decision really simple or much simpler than it was uh, and just basically focusing on the needs of the, the customer. But, yeah, that's what we do in a fitting and we've got great technology to be able to do it. It's comfortable, it's fun. Exactly. Mate, I, I think I think that the stimulator of fun is fun, right? The, the, I've made it is. And you can you can belt the living bejesus out of it, which I love doing and <laughs> just seeing what does and doesn't happen. And uh, but it, look, all these things make you as a player better and, and you certainly get the latest and greatest stuff which you can measure against what you have. It's easier to do that. You can get all the details in real time. And I just think there's there's a wonderful additions in 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 commercial space of golf, which are which are fantastic. And look, I want to use what we've just talked about a little bit and and bounce to something a little bit of current as well. And, and I'm going to throw to it, and it's much to my frustration sometimes. And I'm going to talk about the Bryson effect on consumer golf. And I think Bryson's with Cobra. I think is is his driver or, or his gear or something. I think it is. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but all I hear about at the moment is is Bryson this, Bryson that. He's great on television. He's one of these. He's a personality which I think golf has missed for a long time. Whether you love him or hate him, and, and I'm probably on the other side of of the love. To be honest, I'm a little bit on the other side. But that, I think he's a character for golf, and and he's he's becoming a draw card. He's creating his own brand. In the process, he's getting this following that's just a wave, and. I say the Bryson effect on consumer golf. He talks about you know the length of his driver shafts, and 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 I've heard your your man uh, Rocket on your podcast talk about <laughs> the 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 physicist or what, what's his nickname for him? Uh, the freight, the fake physicist or the fraudulent? Yeah, the fraudulent yeah. physicist. But but that's that's Bryson. That's who he is, and that's how he goes about his game. And he's got the same length shafts on his irons and that sort of. Hey, are you guys? In, in the retail space and, and in, in, in consumer golf, are people starting to, to, to see some of this different way approaching your game and hearing people, are, they, are people asking, you know, what is Bryson? He's using same length shafts. How does that affect my game? Can I look at something like that? Does any company offer anything like that? I don't know. Well, to unpack that, that's a long. That's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, no, sure. Just to start start unpacking that, you know, the Bryson effect. Yes, it does. It does he shift the needle? Does he create eyeballs and awareness on the game of golf? Absolutely. You know, does he get people talking about golf and talking about different concepts in golf? Absolutely. Is that a positive? Absolutely, it is. Of course, it is. You know, yeah. Whether you're on, as you said, you know, one side or the other, you know, and you subscribe to his theories and, and very much theories. And, and methods, um, or or not, you know that's that's for individuals. You know, you, you can listen to Rocket, and he does call him the, the fraudulent physicist. And you know, because sometimes some of the stuff that he chortles on about, you know, you, it does leave you scratching your head. But you know what? The proof is in the results with Bryce. And oh, mate, look. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, and and like I said, I'm not on the love side so much with Bryson, and that's irrelevant. I love what he's done for the sport, but you know, he's he's a character. He's getting this following, and he's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's his way of doing things, and everyone's got their own means. And and at the end of the day, full stop. 
when he he won. Um, what did he win the open? Was it the open? U.S. Open. U.S. Open. Of course, I watched it. Um, this guy can play golf. Make no mistake, and I don't make any, pull any punches about it. He can play real golf. He can compete with the best. It, he goes about it his own way, and and we can all commentate on what we think. But at the end of the day, this bloke can play golf. He's a real golfer. Yeah, he, he is a he's a good golfer and he's a great, he's an excellent golfer. And, you know, he's got a strategy and he's playing his game to that strategy. And mm. so not many people can play that strategy. And, you know, you hear the term bomb and gouge and you hear the term, um, you know, the bomb and gouge is the common term that's referred to when you're talking about Bryson. But it's just bomb it as long as you can and get as close as you green so you can, you know, maximise your shortest clubs to get the ball as close to the hole. Now, that's a pretty solid way of, you know, lowering your golf score for any golfer to try and get closer to the hole. That's what we're trying to do. So you can hit a wedge, not a eight iron or a you know, six iron, not a four iron. Now, because we know the six iron is easier to hit and score with than a four iron. Mm. So anyone would want to do that. But he's just created this ability through, you know, having a physical strategy for that, you know, through this testing. I don't, you know, I, I have my own theory that whether it's right or wrong, to prove right or wrong in the current, the previous, um, not current, in the future times. You know, I, I think for him to get maximum strength out of his muscles, and I'm not the fitness expert, but I've had Ollie Yawn on the Mile of Golf podcast, and we've dedicated a whole episode to talking about this and his thoughts, because he's a golf strength and conditioning specialist. Yeah. But the discussion was, you know, you've got to get big to get build muscle and to get strong, not something that I'm familiar with. So is the, my theory is, is he getting really big and massive and being able to eat and gorge and eat what he wants, basically, and get a little bit what I've termed fit fat or fat fit yep. to then build muscle? And then is he going to sort of next year, are we going to see a different Bryson again? Is he going to lean off? Mm. But then, then he maintains this big muscle and strength. So, mm. you know, who knows? That's all. That's all. Yeah. Theory. But, but what he's been able to do is hit the ball a bloody long way, <laughs> incredible amounts of distance. And, you know, his game's benefited and he's been up there pretty much consistently. He's not had, he's had a couple of poor results in that time, but the tolerance that he's played in, he's you know, performed pretty well. Yeah, but the point about, I was going to say about the one length irons, um, the people ask about those. Yeah, of course. People come in and and ask, oh, what, what are these clubs that Bryson DeChambeau uses? You know, what are the one length irons? What's that all about? Yeah, there you go. It, they do. Um, it's not a, it's not a new concept because, you know, Cobra, who he is with from top to toe, um, so maybe for his putter, uh, it's a sick putter. Um, you know, they're the only ones that are currently market a set of one-length irons, and in pretty much uh, all of their model iterations, they have a one-length variant. Yeah, right, there you go. It's not for everyone. No, of course. It's, just, it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting concept, you know, and it harks back to, not new, you know, like one-length irons were hark back to the origins of the games when there was very little... Uh, difference in length of, of clubs and mm. you know, some players are you know, coming back might have been Ben Hunt, one of the but some of the former greats have played with you know single length clubs but it's not for everyone I've got a set you know I was intrigued and I bought uh, a set of one length uh, Cobra irons at the start of when they first came back out and that, that's the same set that Bryson uses the King uh, forged um, iron which um, the new one's coming out and and I love them it's the one set of clubs that I've still kept i don't use them at the moment but you know usually like most people you know i cycle through things if i stop using something i sell it mm. but i've kept my one length irons because they still intrigue me so yeah these conversations have come up all the time 
the reason I use it and I go back to it is because I get a little bit of back soreness. So when, when my back gets sore and I want to keep playing golf, being able to hit that sort of maximum seven iron length just makes it easy for me to swing every club in the bag without having to bend over and that sort of thing. So, you know, I don't use them very often, my back's all right, but I, the, I can see why people like them. But people are intrigued, and it's a really hard decision for people to go to them. Yeah. And I find the people that do go to them really, I guess, studied up on the concept of one length and this whole, you know, same swing for every every club and, mm. and you know, thought really thoroughly thought about the benefits to their game of, of doing that. Yeah, and, and the lack of variation between, because you know, hitting a three iron and a pitching wedge is a different swing. It's a different plane because the club's a different length and so on and so forth. So to be able to you know consistently do and reduce variables, yeah, you know, people see that as one way of better scoring. Yep. So, but they're not for everyone. But yeah, it's a it's a solid concept and he's proven it. You know, the thing that, that people are talk, talking about Bryson and, and what was brought to everyone's attention is. You know, another topic, uh, another sort of podcast, but, you know, the distance of the, the, the drivers are able to hit and the distance of the ball and, you know, there's a whole other topic on that. And yeah. Got, you know, you, you talk about the forgiveness of the drivers and how easy it is for the, the lesser quality ball strikers to hit the, the current modern-day drivers so straight, you know, and you know that, that you know, he, he would say that, you know, the, there are players out there hitting the tee ball further and straighter because of the driver and someone like him who you know, is the ultimate driving machine mm. hits it straighter all the time isn't getting an advantage because other players are getting an advantage of this maximum forgiveness so he's one that would say you know let's reduce the size of the driver head yeah people are saying let's roll back the ball whatever yeah look but, you know like yeah i i do agree with you that there's there's plenty of things that um you can argue for and against in the game and how it's moving and changing in time and distance and accuracy and forgiveness. And, and look, there's, there's so many moving parts and, and, and the driver is not the only piece of that puzzle. It's, it's a, a very broad topic. And look, there's probably plenty of people above my pay grade that deal with it in a, in a much more serious sense when we're talking about the rules of the sport, but but I think the Bryson effect is an interesting one, and um, it's certainly got a lot of people, a lot of tongues wagging, especially more so now after the Open win. So, um, at well, ten points for his effort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it sort of didn't happen by accident. It, no, exactly. And and Rocket had to eat a bit of uh, Bryson humble pie <laughs> on one episode of the podcast uh, because he was nowhere to be seen um, when Bryson won. And, um, <laughs> But anyway, but the, the true test will be what happens at, at the Masters, you know. Indeed. And we're all in this 48-inch 48, 48 driver and all that. To, you know, his strategy is obvious. You know, he is just going after maximum length to get as close as he can to those par fives so he can turn a par five into a, uh, an eagle, ball, you know, almost like a par four and hit it. And I've said it before and I, I said it before and I'll say it again that he's not the only one to do it. There's, there's people in my podcast, I've, I've talked about it. You know, you've, you've got the DJs of the world that monster it. You've got, you've had in the past, um, you know, your, your Greg Normans and your John Daly's. They've all been there. And we've all had, we've had these waves of people chasing distance who could hit the ball a mile and be accurate. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch. And, and certainly the Masters will have a lot of eyes on Bryson and seeing how, just how his different um, 
method of attack will will come through and, and whether it's going to work or not quite work the way that he's hoping. So all eyes on the Masters, I think. Can't, can't wait for it. It's actually quite, uh, considering where we've been and, and being starved of golf, and, you know, it's quite nice to come out of it and have the Masters only a couple of weeks away. So Absolutely. Absolutely, mate. Now, Ross, with, with all that's been talked about um, in relation to, to golf tournaments and and golf equipment and, and things that um, interest us as we mo- we've moved forward, we've come out of COVID and we're getting back into the sport. One thing that I do love and I have enjoyed listening to during this COVID period is is obviously your podcast, which I do I do love it, my love of golf, and uh, the great people that you've you've had on the the celebrities, the the um, some of your guests, and and obviously you got your your regular there in in Rocket. And uh, recently talking about the sh- tournament that was at Shadow Creek and Rocket's visit to Shadow Creek and in his time gone by. And um, but how is how is the my love of golf going from your side? Is it it's you still got a, a good I suppose a future attendance list that you're looking at of getting getting people on board and you're, you're still loving the topics to talk about and all that sort of thing. How's it going? It's going really well, and it was one of the things that kept me going through that COVID period was being able to you know do that and to talk to people and to reach out to people and and just keep producing some stuff uh it was really a positive thing in my life at that time and how's it going it's going great uh many episodes not many but i've got a number of episodes that have been recorded during that time that are you know yet to be released um and every day you know i talk to someone there's a new opportunity popped up i had a great conversation with a young man very talented young man in uh, America yesterday he's doing some great work so he, he'll be coming on the podcast I've got uh, Rue McDonald from the Scottish Golf Podcast to come on I've got my friend uh, two-time PGA Tour winner Gabriel Hertzstedt to come on and and more and uh, we're approaching I think what am I 98 so I think a couple of episodes off 100 episodes so they reckon well, that's past, yeah they reckon if you get past sort of nine or ten in the podcast world that you considered a, a podcaster so i guess that's uh it's going okay but no i enjoyed chatting to people mate, mate. People hearing golf stories and yeah Look, you know, the, the biggest vindication for me stevie is um you know my dad who's up in Cessnock. yep he would come down and, and visit us uh, every you know few months and when i first started podcasting and he's not a technical person he might even listen to this i don't know i'll put him on top uh but he's not a technical person and we played him one of the early podcasts and it was the megalodon uh, Justin Sops, the Megalodon monster truck driver who I met in Melbourne. Yeah. A monster truck and a mad golfer. Anyway, the, I thought I was clever because the first intro to the podcast was the Megalodon truck revving. <laughs> have, a listen, have a listen to this and the truck revs. And he says, oh, and he's typical stoic Scottish accent. I don't listen to this. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't know. And, you know, like I just shut down. I thought, no, he doesn't, he's not interested in podcasts. Yeah, fair enough. Move on. Anyway, now he's ringing me going, Oh, I listened to your podcast with them, um, you know, such and such and such and such. Oh, it was very good. And uh, <laughs> so when I've got my dad listening to the podcast, uh, that's that's enough enough indication for me that I've done something uh, in my life that's made him happy. So um, that's uh, no. it's a good, it's a good reason to keep going. Mate, look, it, it is, and and I know I speak for for myself and any of the people that I know that have listened to it and do listen to it regularly, and 
mate, it's, it's a joy to listen to. We love hearing the stories and the insights and different facets of, of people that play the game and how they, how they enjoy the game and what they take out of it and, and some of the insights that you've got as well from some celebrities and sports stars. And, mate, it's really enjoyable. And, look, anyone listening to mine, if you haven't before, please go over to the My Love of Golf podcast and listen to, to Roscoe and, and, and his various guests and uh, regulars that are on board because it's a great listen. You'll really enjoy it. And, um, you know, they're, they're good bite-sized podcasts that uh, are easy to digest. And it's really a nice casual way if you need to wind down. I find it really, really calming just to just to really just chill out for an hour or so and, and listen to some of the guests. You've, and you've had some amazing people, I will be honest. So it's great to listen to. And I'm glad it's going well and you, you're really still getting that kick out of out of producing them and putting them out there. And, of course, you're on, like I mentioned at the, the top of the, the segment, that you're on the Mental Mastery with Jamie Glazier and, Golf rules questions now, mate. You you really are a veteran of the of the <laughs> of the podcast world. Well, I, I enjoy doing it, but I enjoy as much um, helping people. You know, it's, I guess it's a little bit of my nature with what I do. And and when I see great people doing good things, you know, I want to I get gravitated towards them. Yeah, you know, much like yourself, Steve. And you know, Jamie and I have been golfing buddies for a couple of years or a few years now. And you know, we talk about golf improvement and I know and you talk about you, you know, using putters and going through them as a as a crutch for you know improving your putting well I'm, I'm the same and I realized that at some point you know it was the, the six inches between my ears so I'm really sort of intrigued and invested in the work that Jamie does and you know I remember the conversation that I had I said you know this is great in a podcast I'm in the podcast and, you know your content will be great in the podcast I think people will love it and he said yeah okay and then some period of time thereafter, he came back and said, you know, I think I might start this podcast. I'm fantastic. Great idea. And he said, oh, but I don't want to do it myself. Can you help me? Said, I'd love to. It was just an absolute, you know, didn't even have to think about it. And, you know, we're 20-odd episodes into the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. Once again, uh, I just love being, A, providing the subject, some of the subject matter for that through my own game. Uh, B, listening to Jamie talk about some of the scenarios and then C, you know, some of the great people that we've spoken to on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast, for those that want to, you know, tune into that, even if you're not into the, the, the mental performance game of golf, which I think everyone should be and can be, um, just some of the guests, you know, talking to Gabby Ruffle, wow. You know, yeah, just a privilege to be able to talk to the US Open, uh, not US Open, sorry, a future US Open, I'm going to put that prediction out there, but a US amateur winner, you know, just started playing in the pro, you know, pros, not as a pro, but as an amateur playing at the British, Women's British Open, a couple of American tournaments, and just talking to about her journey. And a really significant thing for me was I met Gabby at a time when she was 14 in a golf store when I started my golf journey. And she was playing tennis. And I remember looking in her eyes and seeing a young girl, as I said, why don't you play golf? And she just looked at me back and rolled her eyes and you know, Ray was there and she was buying some golf balls uh, for, for her mum for Mother's Day. But anyway, it turned out to be a really significant time in her tennis career. Yeah. Fallen, fallen out of love with tennis and it was at that time. And it just it just reminded me of that. And wow, what an opportunity. And then we chatted to Gabby's parents, um, Anna Maria and Ray Ruffles, and both top-level tennis players of their era. Ray Ruffles, for people that don't know, coached the, Wood, uh, the Woodies through yeah, many, many Wimbledon uh, tournament wins. Uh, he was a top-level um, doubles player himself, you know, played with Phil Dent and, you know, all the top level. Anna Maria, she was a great player in her own right, you know, a, a USC Trojan all-time all-ball famer. So wonderful um, t- 
time to speak to them about parenting and parenting uh, elite athletes because obviously Gabby and Ryan Ruffles both unbelievable golfers. We talk to some of other Jamie's clients and it's just a, it's so much fun, so much and so much learning. And then the Golfers Questions podcast, you know, Blakey, another young man who's got just an absolute passion for golf and he delivers that with golf rules, with this knowledge, savant-like knowledge. He is, is a savant with golf rules and it's, and once again, I'm just drawn to his ability to be knowledgeable about this area and I see the people that um, connect with him talking about golf rules. Now, this quick story on that is how I first met Blakey. I was sitting in an airport in Glasgow, Scotland, and I'd been on one of my golf trips over there. I'd been there with the guys from TaylorMade, went to the Open at Troon, and we played some golf. And uh, one of the playing partners, young Lauren from Geelong, he played a ball out of a burn on a par three at Dundonald Links, and he hit the side of the burn in his backswing. And I posted the video and then I was just swarmed with people telling him that he had broken the rules. And at the time I thought, I, I didn't really think about it because you know, he played it and the ball went near the hole, but he had broken the rule because you know, weren't at the time, weren't allowed to ground your club in the backswing of making a stroke. So all these people started commenting on the rules and Blakey back then, this is 2016, was one of the guys that commented. And me thinking, oh, who's this guy, you know, commenting on this video, you know, golf rules questions some, you know, and I just pigeonholed him as some, you know, older sort of rules sort of type. But no, it was Blakey, a young fellow sitting there in Melbourne who just curates all of this wonderful stuff around golfers. The video got like 27,000 views just on my Instagram, which is nothing. And um, it just made me realise that people were really into it. And once again, podcast, Blakey, you should do one. Can you help me? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So that's all. No, mate. Look, it's great to hear you've got such a passion for helping people and bringing forms of entertainment through listening to the podcast and all the various ones. So, look, mate, glad to see you're still out there enjoying it, delivering it, and being part of so many different ones and helping people along the way. So, look, to my listeners, if you haven't, My Love of Golf podcast, The Mental Mastery, or Golf Rules Questions, go and listen to any of them, all of them, some of them, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it just as much as I have listening to Roscoe. As always, mate, I really appreciate your insight into all things golf. It's great to have a discussion about the sport and the bits and pieces that are going on. Thanks for taking time out to be on my podcast. And uh, good to chat as always, mate, and uh, I look forward to catching up. And but again, to my listeners, if, you, if you're in the city, because Ross is the drum and golf store in the city. Where is it? Fitzroy Street, did you say, mate, in the city, uh, Frank, Melbourne? Yeah, Frank, Franklin Street. Franklin Street, sorry. So, if you look, if you're in town, I think it's a great store. I can say it because I can. Um, go to the shop if you're down that way now that stores are open in Melbourne and people are out there. So if you're listening down that way, get into town, go in and see the store and catch up with, say good day to Roscoe or some of the staff and they're so friendly down there. I've been fortunate enough to experience that side of it and it's great. So, mate, thank you again for your time and I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to be part of my podcast. Stevie, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm happy to do anything I can um, at any time, whenever you say it, it's so easy to do. And uh, I love listening to, to you talk about, uh, you know, your recent episodes talking about my hometown of uh, Cessnock and the Hunter Valley and talking about uh, Cypress Lakes and the vintage and all things around there. That's uh, always is going to warm my heart and keep me coming back. No, mate. Your great craft and skill, mate. Thank you very much. It, it's a part that I love talking about. So thank you again, Roscoe, mate. Good to catch up. And we will again, no doubt, very, very soon. Thanks, mate. Thank you.
Welcome again to the Greenkeeper's Shed. Thanks for coming on down to our little facility for a little bit of insight into golf course maintenance. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this little segment is about golf course irrigation and the relationship that that does to presentation of your golf course, what you experience out there when you play. Now, I think a lot of us would now in modern days being 2020, forget the COVID year, I think we're all, you know, we're starting to, um, it's nearly all, It's nearly an asterisk clause to say that if it wasn't a good year, it's the COVID year. So that's why everything turned to shit. But look, we'll move away from that. When we talk about irrigation, like I said, most people are going to assume now every golf course you go out to is irrigated. They're just going to assume that everywhere is irrigated. Now, as of 2013, Seven years ago, just before the golf course that I was superintendent of being Katoomba Golf Course uh, in, west of Sydney in the Blue Mountains, that golf course that we looked after did not have automatic irrigation. We didn't have a dam to use for irrigation water. We didn't have any stormwater runoff uh, because we didn't have any storage. So what we had was a manual, what I call a manual irrigation system. Now, you will very, very seldom see an old manual system that you have to go around physically and plug hoses and sprinklers in, drag them across the greens and set them up and move them around uh, to irrigate your greens. Or alternatively, to stand there and hand water the greens and the surrounds or tees or whatever. Um, you will very, very rarely come across that on any modern golf course. You might still find it on some of the regional country courses that don't have a lot of money where infrastructure was built back in the day piecemeal as uh, as membership allowed to pay for it as the clubs could afford to do it bits and pieces uh, but in any metro golf course in any modern day golf course you'll probably find that it's usually most of the golf course the playing areas be it tees fairways and greens and surrounds are irrigated and they're irrigated automatically that's what you'll find and there's so many different computer software systems that control these these irrigation these irrigation systems um, that do it automatically with rain sensors and moisture reading controllers and all sorts of stuff. And sometimes it's a lot of the time, I sorry, I should say is it's controlled and set by the superintendent or the greenkeeping staff. They, they come up with the, the best time allocations for the water to be put out on those different areas and um, to, to try and maintain them the best. Uh, but now we're getting to, into more automated systems as well. So that you would just expect. We, we go out on any golf course and we expect that that's what's going on. But I want you to know that that's not always the case. Like I said, that that as of 2013, so seven years ago, my golf course, we were delivering what I would consider was pretty high quality finish, pretty high quality surfaces, pretty high quality presentation on our golf course. But we had a manual system. We had to move hoses and sprinklers around. We had to drag them out. Every morning I'd go to work at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m., depending on the time of the year. And, uh, you know, under torchlight in, in the middle of the night, early morning hours, and I would go around, that was one of my jobs, and all of our staff would take turns. Um, we would go out there and, and throw the irrigation out, move the sprinklers in the dark with the torch, drive around in the dark, and, and uh, you know, hopefully <laughs> every now and then you, the police would turn up because someone saw a torch out on the golf course, and thankfully we had neighbours watching the course for vandalism um and you know you had to um just that's what had to be done there was no other way around it so some courses have that but most of them don't most of them now are, 
are modern day irrigation systems that are set up with computers um, that will control the irrigation and get water out as required. Now, what that does is it means that we can, we can fight mother nature. We can fight against mother nature as much as possible with the water that we have stored somewhere, whether it be tanks or dams uh, or pump from, from bores, for example, but we can fight mother nature. If she doesn't want to give us a nice even delivery of, of water, throughout the growing season or as, as seasons change uh, to maintain the golf course as best we can because we everyone wants it to look green not often is it left to its own devices um, certainly on greens and surrounds where the highest concentration of golf is played you could arguably say 50 percent of golf is played around the greens and surrounds um, and that's something that back in the day was all you could do you only had a, a plug-in point around a green you could hand water those areas or you could put a, a knocker sprinkler around and, and water those areas to keep them green. Now we expect the rest of the golf course to be maintained the same level, but it's not always the case. So I look at things like Augusta. Let's go to the top end of the spectrum. Let's look at a place like Augusta because it's coming up. Now, some of you may have read about recently or you've you've heard about it in the past that, that Augusta have a regime of setting their golf course up where they'll when it comes into that time of the year, they'll scalp the cooch right down because the cooch is what the predominant grass type is for the for the warmer summer periods. They'll scalp it right out. They'll then oversow the golf course from fence to fence with ryegrass, and they've got irrigation everywhere. Of course they do, um, with what would be a seemingly endless water supply. And they irrigate the golf course using copious amounts of water because that's what's required to get that ryegrass to germinate, grow, and we get the beautiful emerald green carpet that is Augusta when the US Masters are on. And it looks absolutely incredible. TV, unfortunately, has created a false expectation of what a golf course should look like. A lot of greenkeepers and myself, we nearly curse what television and viewing some of the biggest tournaments around the world has done to what our local club is expected by its members in terms of presentation but let's take the take the top level augusta have always nearly always been the the premier club in terms of innovation for green keeping you know they've got heated greens for example um, they've got sub air where it draws the moisture out of the soil so you know it grows a little bit better less disease pressure you can deal with humidity issues they've got, you know it's it's Look, it's endless. It's a, it's a rabbit hole if you wanted to go down it, and there's a lot you could find out about it. But they've been innovators, as you would expect, the best in the world, arguably. But that, in my opinion, is probably not the most environmentally conscious way to manage a golf course. Certainly in Australia, a lot of things in other parts of the world don't translate to Australia. We're one of the driest continents on the planet, apart from Antarctica. And it's... It's really difficult in a lot of areas of Australia where we have golf courses to maintain them to a TV expectation. That's what people expect all the time. But it's four seasons in a year, guys. You've got to remember that, and, and those four seasons aren't the same every year. There's, there's variability. So you have to understand that even though we have irrigation on golf courses and different types of it, and some have more and some have less, that the seasons will still dictate what you can and can't do to maintain a golf course. So Augusta is the top end of the spectrum that has water. A lot of the desert courses in, in the States as well, in Nevada, um, you'll find in uh, the, the, the desert tracks around Los, 
Las Vegas have incredible what seems like endless water supplies. Shadow Creek was on TV the other day and, uh, you know, you see this incredible oasis. Again, in my opinion, probably not the best way to present a golf course. Um, I've played, been fortunate enough to play a golf course, so Alice Springs in the middle of Australia. There's the Kalgoorlie, New Kalgoorlie Golf Course in WA that's a green oasis on the fairways. Outside the fairways is dust. But you look at Shadow Creek, it's green from fence to fence. So I think you need to tailor something to your to the region. You want you want a golf course to reflect the space. And if it's a desert, it's obviously very difficult. But you still want it to somewhat reflect that landscape, in my opinion. And and other areas around Australia that that have lesser rainfall will probably have a drier golf course throughout different times of the year than than other areas with high rainfall. You go to northern Queensland, for example, and have copious amounts of rain in summer. You know, but sometimes they'll have drier years. Generally speaking, they have good rainfall. Down in the eastern parts of, of, of New South Wales is usually good good rainfall. There's a lot of concentration of golf courses along the east coast, right on the edges within, you know, the 50 kilometres of the coast that get good rainfall. You go west of the Blue Mountains and it's the opposite. Still golf courses out there, but they do struggle a lot more with water. So irrigation has a direct relationship to the presentation of golf courses, direct results we can't always fight mother nature. She can be really, really harsh like was last year. Most golf courses look shit outside the greens because there was not enough water to put out. Dam storage isn't large enough. There's not enough water to put out. And and you should be environmentally conscious of how you're going about that. So I think it's good for courses to consider where their irrigation goes, how much of their golf course is covered, how much water should they be using throughout the year. And then overall, it's, it's not necessarily an annual allocation. It's a, cycle, a cyclical allocation between, you know, La Nina events, for example, seven to 10-year cycles that I've talked about with this La Nina. When you get your dams topped up, the, the, the um, subterranean water levels are topped up uh, through, through water flows and infiltration of this high rainfall that, that builds up water tables and so on. It, 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 there is a lot more to consider when it comes to irrigation. It's not just where you can throw the water to. It's where you're getting the water from. Now, there's golf courses in Sydney which don't have any on-site natural runoff water supply or even bore water supply. They use town potable water, town water supply. Now, some of them have moved away from that. You've got places like, you know, the the, uh, the top end of town, like a, a Pennant Hills Golf Club in the, the, the western suburbs of Sydney um, that used to use potable water and now uses recycled water. Castle Hill Golf Club, another one that uses recycled water. So Pennant Hills is an innovator in, in being one of the first golf courses in the country to have an on-site sewage treatment plant that treats water to class A+, plus, which means it's absolutely, it's better than the drinking water that comes out of your tap. Um, and it's an on-site treatment plant. It's quite incredible. These are some of the innovations that, that golf courses have had to go down the path of to deliver presentation. Now, uh, a place like Pennant Hills, their, their membership expect that the golf course is going to look absolutely immaculate, akin to, you know, the, I suppose their goal is to be perfectly maintained green year year round, and they do a bloody good job of it. Is that right or wrong environmentally? Well, that's up for anyone can commentate on that. I think using recycled water is a pretty bloody good way of doing it if you're going to use, use a good amount of water to, to fight Mother Nature. I think it's the best and probably the only way to fight Mother Nature to, to put out high volumes of water is, you know, environmentally probably only to use 
recycled water because it's such a good water supply to use because it's seemingly endless. It does cost a lot of money, <laughs> no doubt. And it cost them a lot of money to build that treatment plant on site at Pennant Hills. But your golf course should fit in with the environment. I know we had in the Blue Mountains, usually high rainfall. Uh, when there were dry years, there were dry years. Waterfalls weren't flowing off the cliffs. And subsequent to that, the golf course, we struggled. We could only water around the greens. You know, I look at places, so we've got the top end at Augusta. I go back to Augusta, oversay that course with ryegrass, water from wall to wall, green from, from fence to fence, and immaculate. Incredibly, ridiculously large amounts of water used to do that. Then you have a place like Royal Adelaide in South Australia. Now, I got to visit Royal Adelaide last year. Nathan Bennett, superintendent there, was kind enough to give me his time and, and show me around Royal Adelaide, and I was blown away by how amazing... It, I, I probably, as incredible as Royal Melbourne is, and I say, I've said this before about Royal Adelaide, it, it's, it's often left out of the conversation for some reason when we talk about the best golf courses in the country. I think we keep Royal Melbourne there all the time and we get the, the, um, you know, the Cape Wickhams, the Ocean Dunes, the Barn Bugles all jump up, the Ellistons of the world. But Royal Adelaide for me is, is a special golf course that, I think could probably really be higher in the top end in the top, possibly the top single figures. And, and probably mainly for me, it's a real reason is the beauty with which it sits in the natural landscape. If anyone's ever traveled to South Australia and some of the arid region, well, South Australia is the most, there's the driest state in Australia. So it's nearly all arid. Um, but if you've been there and you've seen the landscape, Royal Adelaide really does, does epitomize the South Australian landscape. So much so, not just in what's around the sides of the golf holes themselves and the way that it sits in the natural landscape, but it's the the tones and the colours and the textures. It's it's just a quintessential Australian golf course, and quite possibly, I think, because of that, it could be the best example of an Australian golf course because of its arid surroundings outside those whole corridors. And the way that it sits, it just, it really does epitomise Australia. When you think of it, the dry continent that is Australia and a lot of the dry areas of the country, Royal Adelaide, to me, it, it really is Australia. If ever there was a golf course that you could say was Australia, it's Royal Adelaide. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it might go against a lot of what people suggest, but really, that's what I think when, when I saw it in person for the first time and I could walk those fairways without hitting a golf ball for days and be amazed by its location. So Nathan and his team are custodians of the land. And I've said this before when I talked to, talked to Richard Forsyth at Royal Melbourne, the, the, the superintendents and director of courses are custodians of that space. Golf clubs are custodians of the land that the golf courses are on. So at Royal Adelaide, getting to back to Royal Adelaide, Nathan was telling me about how they have what we call hard edge irrigation. So they've got full golf course irrigation. They hold Australian Open tournaments. They've held in the past and the ladies tournaments and so on. Some of the, the highest profile tournaments in Australia have been hosted by Royal Adelaide. Now, with that hard edge irrigation that they have, that means what that means is that the, the irrigation water is distributed only to the areas of mown turf and maintained turf and they've decided what those areas are and what that space is but effectively you've got your greens and your surrounds you've got your tees 
when it comes to the holes themselves, the whole corridors, it's basically just outside or it's the fairway edge and the water is distributed in. They're not 360 degree thrown irrigation heads where the water throws out into the rough. So if they have a dry and drier year than normal in, in Adelaide, their rough doesn't just burn off, but they've literally got sand outside their fairways. It's not a desert course, but it's pretty bloody close. And, and you get in under the shrubbery and stuff, it's just rubbish and garbage and sand and thin spindly vegetation. It's not grass as such. So their irrigation is concentrated to the closely mown portions of the golf course, which is where most of the golf is played, certainly in, in tournament level. Uh, but their membership as well, if you hit outside that, that's part of the natural landscape. That's why I say they're custodians of the, of the landscape. And that's what I love about Royal Adelaide. So their irrigation water is, is utilised in what they would consider the most efficient way possible by not wasting it on areas that are out of high concentration for maintenance and high presentation areas. And that's a different way of distributing water for course irrigation. So they've got full course irrigation, but they don't water the full fence-to-fence -fence parts of the land. They keep those natural areas as, as natural as possible. So if it's dry, it's dry. If they have a wet year, they have a wet year and they maintain it as such. But being the driest state in the country, it's going to be pretty hard to uh, to fight Mother Nature. They they just say, we're going to keep these out of areas, out of high maintenance areas natural. And the, the cycles of the years and the rainfalls will dictate how that's presented. But we're going to maintain these high intensity areas of closely mown grass, we're going to maintain to the best of our ability and we'll distribute water through that so we can do that. And when you go to Royal Adelaide and look at it, it's an incredible space to walk, to look at. Some people catch a train and go straight through the middle on their way to the beach at Glenelg and uh, we'll see the golf course from the train. It's a unique feature of Royal Adelaide as well. Um, but that's a different way of doing it. So you have so many different ways of of having water distributed around golf courses, some are manual with, with handheld hoses and sprinklers and handheld nozzles and hand watering. You have the Augustas of the world and the Shadow Creeks of the world that are fence to fence, whether it be in average rainfall regions where you can, you can reasonably fight mother nature or desert regions where you can't believe you can fight mother nature. You have hard edge irrigation like Royal Adelaide. Um, I'll throw another one at you. When I, I, I went down and, and visited Bonnie Doon, and caught up with Superintendent Cameron Smith. Cameron was telling me the course had sort of, they were in their last stage of work, so it was a couple of years ago now, I think, not even, not quite. Cameron was telling me that they don't have in-ground sprinklers on the golf course. And I just looked at him like, because oh, I thought Katoomba, where we were, was, was pretty much the only course in a region of reasonably populous area that had no automatic irrigation system. He said, no, no, we don't have that. We have handheld hoses and it's labor intensive. So our staff go out every day or whatever they need to, um, and we hand water the greens and surrounds. And I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. So that's how they go about maintaining their, their greens in their spaces. And Bonnie Doon is a great golf course. It's a great Sydney golf course. Recently, recently, finally, fully redesigned and built by um, the redesign has finally been envisaged by the club, but that was done by OCCM at the time. And, and, um, the design is fantastic. Great, great golf course to play in Sydney. One of the, one of the top end courses you you play, and um, 
a, again, a different way of doing it. If you don't have an automatic irrigation system, it's labor intensive. You, you have to have people on the ground to be able to water your golf course. At Katoomba, we had a staff of four in the good times, two in the bad times, and um, we had about six in the best times. On average, we worked around four greenkeepers. And when we were in water restrictions, because we used town supply water, and we had a small portion of the golf course that was using bore water, and we had to have volunteer members come out and help us water the greens when we couldn't use sprinklers uh, because of water restrictions. So it's a there's so many and very different ways of doing it. But but course irrigation, if you don't have course irrigation, it doesn't mean you don't have a good golf course. If you don't look at the the British golf courses when they have dry years, they're on the coast, Linksland, sandy based water drains super quickly if they have a dry year they can't fight it we've seen some of the the uh images of of the the um british opens of the years gone by where it's just barely it's got green patches instead of brown patches for fairways you know um they, they get incredible amounts of run on their golf courses with uh with the dry fairways and a dry course set up and firm greens and all but you know what that's part of golf that's part of the cycle of maintaining a golf course. And I think more golf courses should should present themselves in that way. And, and we shouldn't lower our standards, or sorry, we shouldn't lower our expectations of how a golf course is presented. We should become more knowledgeable in understanding how a golf course should be presented. Now they're two very different things. And I think for an average golfer who plays week in, week out, that is a regular on a golf course that, that loves their sport, loves their game, loves their club and loves the courses that they visit. If a golf course is not green from fence to fence, if the fairways have green patches on them and not uh, brown patches, so if they're mostly brown with green bits, that just means it's a dry year. You can still present a good golf course well and truly, absolutely. And it's been shown on TV in the British Opens that you can do that. There's no doubt about it. But we need to understand that different golf courses will present differently. And I'm, by that, I mean not green, not green from fence to fence. They'll be presented differently in different times of the year and in different regions of the country of Australia and indeed the world. But we need to get our heads around that because environmentally and in turn financially, it's so much better to maintain a golf course that way. Golf courses will be able to be maintained for longer. Clubs will be able to be in existence financially for longer. They'll be able to have less inputs and less financial inputs, be it labor, be it infrastructure, be it um, consumables, be it water, to maintain their golf course than if it was a high use green year-round golf course we need to get our heads around that the beauty of playing golf in north queensland where they get high rainfall throughout the summer means of course it's going to be green if you go down to to um, victoria and they're having a dry summer the golf courses are going to be going to be more brown than they are green and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that you just got to play different golf a different style of golf your game should adjust to the different places that you play golf and and in turn, as the seasons and the years change at your home club, if you're in, you know, the the um, Mornington Peninsula of Melbourne, that if it's a dry year, 
you have going to have more run out in your golf course. If it's a wet year, you're going to have less run, but it's going to be greener naturally. No inputs required, less inputs required. You know, we don't need money for to, to buy water. We don't need money to build irrigation infrastructure where you don't really need it. Look at Royal Adelaide. And I promise you, if you look at Royal Adelaide, you will change your minds because they do it so well. It's about understanding the landscape with which the golf course sits and being custodians of the landscape. And that's what's important. Golf courses are meant to fit in to where they are in existence. And that's the best way and the most ecologically sustainable way for golf, golf courses to exist into the future. I hope that's given you a bit more of an insight on what you'll come across throughout the years. And I've said that we're in a La Nina year, so go and enjoy the green. Go and enjoy the greenery in Australia, wherever you're playing. But know that in three or four years' time, it's going to go back to being more brown than green. I enjoy those changes. And as a greenkeeper and superintendent, I enjoy those challenges. Sometimes you want to go and have a little cry in the corner because it's so, so difficult to try and maintain a golf course. But the reason why is because you have people barking at you saying you should be able to do a better job. Like I said, I think it's important that we don't lower our standards and expectations of how a golf course is presented, but rather we increase our knowledge base and understand how a golf course is presented. And I really think that that's going to change how you look at the golf courses you play in. And you'll also appreciate it and you'll appreciate your game better your round of golf better, the way that you play that golf course better because the presentation of a golf course in its environment is what makes the game itself challenging on that course to boot because you can have a different golf course in winter that you can in summer and you can play it a totally different way from 2020 to 2021. So that's the Greenkeeper Shed, guys. I hope it gives you a little bit more information and thanks again for, uh, for listening into it. And that is yet another wrap of the Golf and Greenkeeper podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you enjoy my golf chat with Ross Flanagan. I really love catching up with Roscoe. He's got a wonderful mind and a wonderful, great, wide insight into the world of golf in Australia. And uh, I hope you got a few little bits and pieces out of the news in Walking the Fairways and certainly also out of the Greenkeeper Shed talking about irrigation. So thanks again coming on for a ride. I hope you enjoyed the listen. Um, please pass on the podcast to any of your friends, family, people that you know of. Tell them to have a listen in. I hope they get a little bit of knowledge out of it as well. Um, have a comment. Send me a message. Happy to chat away. I've been chatting to a few of my followers and a few listeners on Instagram and Facebook. So please, if you've got anything you want to talk about, let me know. Send me some of your photos of the courses that you've been playing because I love hearing where you've been, what you've been up to, how you've been traveling in COVID. It's really good to see people getting out there, enjoying different golf courses and enjoying the sport of golf again in general. If you want to listen in to Ross Flanagan, I do thank Ross again for his time chatting. Go to the My Love of Golf podcast and have a listen in to Roscoe and his many guests that he has. Feel free to also go to his other ones, obviously being the Mental Mastery podcast with Jamie Glazier or Golf Rules Questions. Uh, this just <laughs> Roscoe is in everything, which is great to see. And like I said, he's got a good knowledge base. So thanks again for listening, guys. Please pass the podcast around however you feel free. And I look forward to you joining me next time. And I appreciate your company as always. You hit them clean and we'll keep them green. Go out there and enjoy your golf, guys.